Happy Thanksgiving again to everybody. If you would open your Bibles or just look in your in your um, bulletin to our passage, it comes from First Thessalonians. That's a New Testament letter of Paul written to the church in Thessalonica. We call it First Thessalonians because we have a Second Thessalonians as well. Um, we are towards the end of this letter. Paul is giving a few parting exhortations to this church that he loves. He reminds them of God's will for their lives, and it's a beautiful reminder. It's for us this morning as well. We are looking at 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 16 through 18. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If we want to know God, if we want to know his will, if we want to know his way, we must know his word. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for these words to us. Uh, We thank you that in them we know you and what you have planned for us. It's good to know your will. We pray for the Spirit's power this morning to, to have its transforming effect in our hearts and in our minds, we pray. Amen. You know, this past Thursday, we celebrated Thanksgiving, right? And unfortunately, many approach holiday meals with reservation and trepidation. Uh, George Carlin, the comedian, once quipped, The other night I ate at a really nice family restaurant. Every table had an argument going on. (laughs) Instead of rejoicing and praying and giving thanksgiving... Many a Thanksgiving meal is marked instead by grumbling and bickering and, and complaining. Now, we tend to cast blame on that, on that one person, that, that one great aunt or uncle or maybe a parent or a, or a sibling, that one that, that person that always seems to set everyone on edge. Some of you guys are looking around laughing. All right, you know who that person is. All right. We're quick to say, I'm not the one to blame. But the truth is, ultimately, apart from God's grace in our lives, we are, by nature, grumblers and bickerers and complainers. If you don't agree with me, get a notepad and throughout this week, uh, uh, make jot down your um, in a log just how your what your thoughts are when things come your way, how you interact with other people when they upset you. How do you respond? I think you will find that we can all become Grumblers and bickerers and complainers. And, and even when things are going right, we can be this way. One author, Bob Russell, captures this in this quote. He says, listen closely. He says, it is a rare person who, when his cup frequently runs over, can thank God instead of complaining about the limited size of his mug. Isn't that true? Unfortunately, grumbling, bickling, and complaining is often our default setting, even when God has been gracious towards us. You remember the the story of when when God delivered his people out of Egypt. It wasn't very long, and they started grumbling and bickering and complaining. But the Christian has an even greater deliverance. In Christ Jesus, we have received the mercy and the grace of God. We've been forgiven for our sins. And more than that, we've been adopted into God's very own family. 
And being in God's family has a transforming effect upon us. It makes us into different types of people. Instead of being grumblers and bickerers and complainers, we see that we are to be glad and, and, and in communion with God and thankful. That's what we see in verses 16, 17, and 18. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. God has a will. He has a plan. He has a purpose for his people. And is that as it is that we would experience his grace and ponder it in such a way that it would have this transforming effect upon us, that we would be these very people that he's planned for us to be. That's what we're going to look at this morning. Two quick points we're going to look at. The first is the features of God's family, the features of God's family. There are certain features that we are to, to have in our lives as we share in God's family and then the provision for God's family. All right. So first, the features. You know, somewhat regularly, people ask to meet with me, and I enjoy doing this. They, they come to my office, and we sit down, and we talk. And essentially, their desire is to understand what God's will is for their lives, usually with, as it relates to, to school or to work or a new relationship, those kind of things. And if I have a good relationship with the person, and they're not in like a totally distraught state of mind, I will open up to this verse. And I'll say, oh, you want to know the will of God? Well, the, the will of God is that we would rejoice always, pray unceasingly, and in all things give thanks. And then these will roll their eyes at me or something. Now, if I have a really good relationship with this person, I will go back to the previous chapter. You know what's in the previous chapter? Paul says in, in, in 1 Thessalonians 4.13, he says, It is God's will that you should be sanctified. That is, it's God's will that he would set you apart as his in holiness and purity and in goodness and in, in righteousness. Now, Rarely does anybody call me up to ask to meet about those things. Um, it's true, isn't it? We are often far more concerned with where God is taking us than who he is remaking us to be. I'm going to describe a couple objects, and as I'm describing them, I want you to kind of figure out what it is that I'm describing. The first is uh, something that has a trunk with bark. And it's got limbs, and, it, and its leaves are, are needle-like. And, and you, you, buy, you buy this in, in December, and you put presents under it. What is it? It's a Christmas tree, all right? The other is a four-legged uh, house pet that likes to wag its tail and bark, and it is known as man's best friend. What am I describing here? A dog. All right. You guys are good. All right. Here's a treat. All right. There you go. All right. Maybe not. Um, see, no other house animal barks and wags its tail except a dog. There's no other tree with needles that you put presents under in the month of December than a Christmas tree. So, too, the children of God have distinguishing features. There's three distinguishing features here on Paul's list. And they're so important that each one gets its own verse. Did you see that? Verse 16. It's easy to memorize. All right. Verse 16. Rejoice always. Verse 17. Pray without ceasing. Verse 18, give thanks in all circumstances. Let's look at these three distinguishing features. First is rejoice always. Now, when we hear the word rejoice, it, for some it kind of has this churchy feel to it, right? It, but, but it need not be that way. Uh, the, re, the word rejoice in the Greek is chiro, and it describes a, a state of happiness or a state of well-being. It can also be translated to be merry, to be glad. There is to be a merriness or a happiness that is pervasive in the family of God and with the children of God. 
Paul also writes, be uh, rejoice always. Now, the Greek word for always could be translated literally every when. Every when. When are we to rejoice? If someone asks you that, you say every when <laughs> we are to rejoice. But it's true. Much of the world rejoices when circumstances go their way. For joy for many is contingent upon favorable, favorable events. You have a good day at school and you will be happy. You have a bad day at school and you will be sad. You will, be, you will grumble with dissatisfaction. Good question to ask then is, how is it that the Christian is able to rejoice in good times and in the bad? Is Paul just calling for us to get a, a, a stiff upper lip? To, to join in with the Stoics of his day, to wrestle up some good religious willpower within. No, that's not what Paul is getting at here. You know, it's interesting that the gospel, in, in, in this words, rejoice always. If you look at, in the original Greek, those two words, um, excuse me, rejoice and the word grace, come from the same root word in the Greek. There is something similar between rejoicing and God's grace. Because the Christian's life is now bound up in the gracious work of God, he experiences the grace of God in all circumstances, and he's therefore able to be joyful always. One commentator makes this point. He says, joy is not caused by circumstances, but has to do with one's relationship with God and the adoration and the praise and the sheer joy that arises out of that communion with God. Which leads to our second distinguishing feature in the family of God, and that is praying without ceasing. You know, the pagans in Paul's day used to to pray to their deities in order to assuage them, to get them to comply to what you wanted your God to do. The deities were aloof and they required much cajoling from people. But at the end of the day, as people prayed, they didn't have a whole lot of confidence that their God was even listening or would even uh, provide them an answer that was favorable to them. But not so Christians in Paul's day and not so Christians today. See, our God is not a distant, incorrigible God, but God is now one that we call Heavenly Father. Through Christ, we become children of God. God sees us as his treasured children. He watches over us and and cares for us. uh, We need to be reminded of this. The one who watches over us, Christians, is none other than God Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth, who has taken great delight in you to be his child. Jesus taught us to pray, our Father who art in heaven. Christian, the good and wise and powerful creator God is our heavenly Father. And so to pray without ceasing is, is, in a sense, just like any other good earthly parent enjoys the communion and the fellowship with their children. So, too, our Heavenly Father. He delights to hear from us. And not just, uh, not just on Sundays, not just as we get up in the morning or as we're about to lay down for slumber. Paul says that this is something that's to be done without ceasing. And what this means is that our lives are to be lived with reality that that we are always uh, walking and living and breathing in God's very presence. And that because of our relationship with him, that he is our father, 
uh, we are able to share our thoughts and our hopes and our dreams, along with our fears and concerns and frustrations. That's what we're called to do. We don't just do this once a week. This is throughout the day, every day. Eugene Peterson, in his book, Practice Resurrection, describes it this way. We pray when we are meditatively quiet before God with Psalm 118 open before us. We pray while taking out the garbage. We pray while we're losing our grip and then ask God for help. We pray when we are weeding the garden. We pray when we are asking God to help a friend who is at the end of her rope. We pray when we are writing a letter. We pray when we are in conversation with our cynical and bullying boss. We pray with our friends in church. We pray walking down Main Street in the company of strangers. The great Christian scholar F.F. Bruce adds to that saying, to pray without ceasing does not mean that every other activity must be dropped for the sake of prayer, but that every activity must be carried on in a spirit of prayer, which is the spontaneous outcome of a sense of God's presence. Do you see why it is God's will that we would commune with him throughout the day? Christian, you are a child that God delights in. It's his will that we would speak to him, commune with him throughout the day. The third distinguishing feature of the Christian is that we are to give thanks in all circumstances. Now, you may be thinking, is Paul repeating himself? First he says rejoice, and then he says give thanks in all circumstances. No, he's not repeating himself. These, these two, two realities are related, but they're not identical. See, it's possible to be merry, to be happy, to be glad, and not really be thankful. It's true that you can rejoice over things in your life and not be grateful. And it's also true that the circumstances in your life can be great, and yet you're not grateful. This month's, or excuse me, December's Atlantic magazine has a cover story on midlife crisis. You can probably picture the picture on the cover, right? It's some sullen man sitting in his beautiful red convertible car. The author of that Cover story is Jonathan Rausch. He described a time in his life when he had everything that should make a person happy, and yet he wasn't satisfied. Though he achieved far more than anyone else had at this time in his career, he says he described his life as being like a constant drizzle of disappointment. He went on to write, What annoyed me most of all, much more than the disappointment itself, was that I felt ungrateful. The last thing in the world I was entitled to be. We can be surrounded by circumstances which should make us glad, and yet in those circumstances we find ourselves unthankful. But for the Christian, this isn't to be an option Uh, Once again, F.F. Bruce, he says, as for thanksgiving, that is the natural response of a heart conscious of the greatness of God's grace. 
the Christian has come to realize, or at least we should be realizing, that all of life is grace. Every breath that we breathe, the food that we eat, the relationships that we enjoy, the success that we experience are all gifts of God's grace for which we are to be thankful for. And, and therefore, we are to acknowledge our ongoing need of God's grace as well as his ongoing supply in the lives of his children. We're not just to rejoice, but we're to give him thanks. So how does this challenge you this morning? We've seen these three features of, 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 that are distinguishing marks of someone who is in the family of God. Do you see your own life uh, a family resemblance? Do you find yourself a person who has joy, even though uh, the circumstances might not prove to be a time to be joyful? Do you, throughout the day, uh, commune with your Heavenly Father Speak and talk like you would an earthly parent who loves and cares for you. Are you thankful? Are you grateful uh, for the life that God has given you and the circumstances in your life? Those are the marks of uh, the distinguishing features of those who belong to God's family. Those who have received God's grace. Not for the provision. The provision for God's family. Yeah, I don't think we're surprised when we hear that the Christian is to rejoice and pray and give thanks. We're not all that surprised, right? What kind of sets us on edge is when we hear always, without ceasing, and in all circumstances. Paul's kind of driving home a point, isn't he? Um, one, one commentator points out this is, this is really just kind of the atmosphere that is to pervade the Christian life. It's an ongoing reality in the life of a believer. Now, unfortunately, many, not many, but some pastors will preach this passage this way. Christians are to rejoice and pray and give thanks. So go and be that person. Now, that's not the way of the gospel. Uh, when, when we hear preaching like that, it can either cause us to feel as if we're inadequate. It can cause us to feel doomed to failure or it can flame with us, and within us a little bit of pride. Yeah, I can do that. I'm going to go out and do that. But this is not how this passage is to be preached or to be received. Yes, it's important that, that we know where we fall short and that these words of Paul encourages us to, to press on to what we are in Christ and that we're in need of transformation. But if we walk out of here with just a list of things to go do, we're going to fail. We're either going to fall flat on our faces or we're going to lift ourselves up in pride because we just happen to do it well that day. So Paul here, just to give us um, these three distinctions of being in a family, what he does is he tells us the provision that God gives us so that these can be worked into our lives. And we see it in, uh, after he gives us those three marks, he says this, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And what we'll see is it's nothing short of the work of the Trinity to provide for us this reality, this new person that we are to be. First, God the Father. You know, God the Father's will is different than a human will. Uh, if, you, if you will to be famous someday, chances are what? It's not going to be a reality. Sorry, young ones here. Uh, but with the Father's will, with God's will... Everything he wills, everything he plans, everything he desires becomes a reality. 
So when you read that this is God's will for you, it has a more fuller sense than, well, God just hopes that this works out in your life. Try as best as you can, and maybe this will come true for you. No, Paul says this is God's will for you, Christian. It's going to happen. Yeah, you might slow things down a little bit. You might kind of get in the way. But in the end, this is God's plan for his children, that, that we would be these types of, this type of person. So it's going to happen. We might slow it down, but, but that's why Paul says, uh, you know, gives us the admonition, rejoice and pray. Be thankful. We need that encouragement, but we also need to know that this is God's will for us. He will bring this about in your life if you belong to him. Paul writes elsewhere, he says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Christian, understand this. God has put you on a trajectory of his grace. As a boy, I used to like to play with model train sets. Sometimes I would get two separate tracks going at the same, uh, at different times. I'd set up two different tracks. And, and I had one train, though. So what I have to do is, I have to, in order to use the other track, I'd have to literally pick up the train and move it and generally place it on the other track and then hit the go button and then watch my train roll around the track. Christian, in a very similar way, God has placed his hands on you. He has taken you from one track and placed you on another track. And its destination is somewhere new and different. It's the place where he is taking all of his children. We're going to get there. Your train might stop for a while. You might even go into reverse at some point. Uh, uh, but, it's some, but you know where you were going. This is God's will for you to be transformed into the likeness of Jesus Christ. Now, Christian, if this is God's will for you, how are you to respond? How can we not help but respond with rejoicing? Closer communion with God. Thankfulness. See how that works out? So Paul's encouragement isn't, isn't try hard to become the person you aren't, but rather rest in the person you already are in Christ Jesus. Do you see the difference? It's not about one of striving and failing, but rather one of resting and receiving in Christ Christian, God has set his sights on you. He, he, it is by his will that you became a member of his family. This should humble us. It should drive us closer to him. It should create in us a constant state of thankfulness and longing to be uh, in constant communion with our Heavenly Father. But not only is this the Father's will, but Paul says that this is God's will in Christ Jesus. The second person of the Trinity. That's what we see. Verse 18. This is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Understand this. God the Father wills our salvation. And through the Son, he accomplishes our salvation. Christian, it's important that you understand this phrase, in Christ. As you read the New Testament, it pops up everywhere. It's like a melody that rolls through the New Testament scriptures. Understand this. You're not just saved by Christ. 
you are saved in Christ. What does that mean? What's the difference? Well, many Christians look at their salvation transactionally, and, and there's nothing wrong with that. We see passages in scriptures where where Jesus, um, you know, he, he died as a ransom uh, for us, right? So there is some bit of a transactional, but um, but we tend to think our salvation is like this. Well, I believed in Jesus long, long ago. He did this thing. And um, and then he gives me, um, you know, salvation and, and, and a ticket to heaven. And it seems transactional, kind of at arm's length. But that's not what we see in the scriptures. In the New Testament, we keep reading where we are, where the Christian, uh, where God's grace has been given to us in Christ or with Christ. Paul writes to the believers in Colossae. He says, you have died. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. That's not transactional language. That's language of being brought in to the very life of Christ. In Romans, Paul writes, we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into his death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so too we might walk in newness of life. And then he says, For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Christian, try to wrap your head around this. But in a mystical and yet really true way, your life has been unified with Jesus's. Your life is hidden with him. Your life is like a bookmark in a novel. (laughs) Each new chapter, you're a part of that story. When he lived in that perfect life, guess what? You were there in him, with him in that perfect life. When he died, you died with him. When he rose, you rose with him. This is what we call union with Christ. And this is yours in Christ Jesus. Your life is hidden in his. Your future is hidden in his. And so is your present. You're not that old person you used to be. You are a new creation. In Christ Jesus, his life is yours and yours is his. And the sooner we try to wrap our heads around that, the sooner our hearts are inflamed with joy and delight and and a new understanding of who we are in Christ. We read in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old thing passed away. Behold, New things have come. Christian, do you see your life that way? That's God's will for you, that you would see your life this way. That you would know, contrary to what your your own feeble heart and your own foolish machinations conjure up, that God truly loves you like a child. And that his plan from eternity past is to redeem you, to restore you, not at arm's length, but by rather in a mystical, spiritual way, placing you into the very life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Tell me if that does not make your heart pump with joy. It must. If it doesn't, I'm afraid you do not know the Lord. And you need to turn to him. So you can experience his love and, and, and passion towards you and forgiveness and mercy. Now for the third person of the Trinity. Uh, that's that Holy Spirit. 
Perhaps you're saying, but Mark, the Holy Spirit's not mentioned in this passage at all. Why are you even bringing him up? Well, if you have your Bible open, the very next verse is what? Do not quench the Spirit. To quench the Spirit conjures up this sense of pouring water on a roaring fire. And we can do that with the Holy Spirit. When we deny the Spirit's power by trying to live the Christian life in our own strength, we quench the Spirit and His work in our lives. It's like being on that train track and we start to go in reverse. We're still going to the same destination. The Spirit would have us move on as He guides us and presses us forward. Now, the Spirit isn't an it. It's a he. It's a person. He's a person. The Father wills our salvation. Christ accomplishes our salvation. And the Holy Spirit applies it to our lives. Scripture teaches that no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Scripture says that the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead dwells in every believer, whether you feel that way or not. The Spirit works in every believer not just to give us faith, but to powerfully transform us into the image of Christ that we are destined to become. So you becoming more like the person Paul describes in these three short verses is really you responding to the grace of God and to the work of his Holy Spirit dwelling in you. Consider Paul's words to rejoice always. Uh, what is joy? It's, uh, it's the same root word as rejoice. Joy is, is kara, where we get the name kara. Uh, joy is part of the fruit of the Spirit. Paul writes in Galatians 5, he says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Where the Spirit is at work, the new creation is being transformed and joy is a part of that. Joy does not come about because of your striving just to go out and be more joyful. Joy comes into the believer's life by a work of the Holy Spirit in the believer as he causes us to be reminded of God's grace towards us and his work in our lives. And that's, that's how joy becomes a part of who we are. Prayer, too, is, is a provision of the Trinity. We pray to the Father through uh, Jesus, our high priest, in the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul writes in Romans chapter 8 that even when we don't even know what to pray about, the Holy Spirit does what? Intercedes on our behalf with groanings uh, that we can't even comprehend as he, as he prays for us. So ponder that. God delights so much in you, with, in you with you, uh, and he delights and longs so much for our communion with him that he provides all that we need to pray. The ability to access him, he provides. The spirit we depend upon, he provides. And check this out. Even the circumstances in our lives that leads us to pray to him, he causes to happen. In a few moments, we're going to turn our attention to the Lord's table as we celebrate communion. Another word we call Lord's Supper communion. Another word for it is the Eucharist. Uh, it's from the, uh, the Greek word Eucharisteo, which means to be thankful. It's the same Greek word that we have in our text, to be thankful in all circumstances. As we gather at this table, it'll be a time for thanks for us. The bread and the wine, they, they point out the fact that, that our lives now are really bound up in Christ. We are in him. We have died with him and risen with him. 
His blood, in some mysterious way, was our blood was mixed in with it, commingled. It was our sin that was on the cross as he hung there. Uh, it's it's um, his new life that that as he rose from the grave that we experienced. That's what we celebrate here this morning. So the, it, let's call it the Eucharist. It's a time for for Thanksgiving for us as we come before this table. And as we do so this morning, let's remind, be reminded of God's gracious, powerful work towards us as his people. God has not left us alone to struggle in our old sin nature. He has made us new in Christ. Our lives now, and most certainly in the age to come, are bound up in the Trinity's unfolding story and our lives are a bookmark in that unfolding story of God's redemption and grace. So maybe take time to ponder our estate. Let's take time to think with great joy upon what God has done for us. Let us delight to come and commune with him in prayer. Uh, Let us do so with great thanksgiving. Why? For this is God's will for us in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these words towards us. We thank you that you are a God who has a will and you are powerful to bring it about. Our lives are not left um, tossing in the sea, but our lives are being directed by you. You are making us into new people by your grace through Jesus and in the power of the Holy Spirit. May we rest in that. May that delight us. May we be people who truly rejoice and walk with you with great thankfulness, we pray. Amen.